When I went to law school in 1977, I also did an arts degree. My main subjects were English literature and history. I chose them because I thought they would make me a better lawyer, better able to understand people and the way that they work. Sophie G, a professor of English literature at Princeton University in the US, wrote an article for the Sydney Morning Herald recently about the value of studying English literature. She said, letting go of the longing to get the answer right teaches people not to cling to fixed ideas, but to embrace uncertainty and to prioritise being interesting over being safe. But learning how to be wrong is an acquired skill. I'm going to say that again, because that's the guts of this. Learning how to be wrong is an acquired skill. It's not innate. Instinctively, we think we're right, fixate on goals and outcomes, and repeat thought patterns that are safe but limiting. In other words, literature helps us to trust failing enough to be bold. To be fully human is to embrace ambiguity and uncertainty, to not hide in our holes, but to come out and face the world that God has placed us in. Recruiters in many large organisations have picked up on this, whereas intelligence and the ability to work hard were once the main criteria, now they're taken for granted. And the attributes that are most prized are the social skills to work in a team because most large organisations use teams to do complex things and the ability to deal with ambiguity. Can a potential recruit keep going when they don't understand everything that's happening around them? Can they keep things in the air long enough to work out what they need to do? Can they deal with not knowing the answer to everything and respond quickly to the unexpected. Ambiguity may not be a word that you use regularly. It doesn't mean confusion so much as unclear and uncertain. The practice of law has a lot of uncertainty about it. Uh, I see a lawyer down there, she knows this very well. Uh, so much of it depends on what other people do. Will people keep their promises? How good a witness will somebody be? Will the judge be having a good day or a bad day? And if you have to, and if you've missed something, how quickly can you respond? Uncertainty is a, a very big issue in the world today. We're uncertain about the future, about China, about democracy in a number of countries, about the economy, our jobs, our health, our relationships, the availability of housing, and conspiracy theories feed on uncertainty. The ability to deal with ambiguity or uncertainty in another age might have been called having your wits about you. And in biblical terms, I think it is caught up in being able to act wisely, to make the right or best choices, whatever is happening. And my purpose today is to show how God's word in the Bible and trust in God help us deal with the ambiguity or uncertainty of life. 
We're better placed than most others because of how God helps us. Uh, We learn not to hide in tightly enclosed communities, but to be Jesus' people in the world, to trust Jesus and our faith in him so that we do not need to be so dogmatic as to be stupid, to live with the tension between two things which are hard for us to reconcile, to live and have faith and to live out our faith without knowing the answers to every question or or even if we're asking the right questions. For the Bible is full of ambiguity, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. How can Jesus be both fully human and fully God? We believe that, but we can't explain how it works or, or what it was like for Jesus. When did Jesus first know in his earthly life that he was God or would have to die for the sins of the world? As we read the Gospels, we just have to hold both truths in our hands and work with them as best we can. Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. Uh, We see it in some places, but we don't know how it works all the time. And then there is the Trinity. God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, all at the same time. How can three distinct persons be one God? How can one God be found in three persons? No one can give a complete answer, but we all believe it. We've just said it in our creed. We hold in the one hand that God is one and in the other that God is three. And we get on with life. There is a tension we are, we've, we've, we've learned to live with because we read our Bibles and know that God helps us even if we don't understand everything fully. Another ambiguity, how can God be both eternal and an active agent in time? Many theologians have speculated about this, but we haven't got any final answers. We believe that God has no beginning and end. He alone is uncreated. He made time and is the master of it. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving and all-good. But how can we know everything and yet still care about what we do from moment to moment? He does, and I'm really glad he does. But how do we explain it? There is ambiguity around God's goodness and power. How can an all... Sorry, I've been there. Um... No, sorry, how can an all-loving, all-powerful God allow suffering and at times be the cause of it? We have to balance the justice he brings to Israel and Israel's neighbours with the harm involved in dispensing that justice. And why do some people suffer more than others? Why do some good people suffer so much more than people who don't seem to us to be too good? At various times over the last five years, I've grappled with that issue with you. Uh, And I know that despite God's love and mercy, all of us will get sick and die, whatever we pray. And each day we have to live with that ambiguity. We love and trust God, whatever happens. Sadly, some people can't live with that ambiguity and give up on God. But you've just got to hold those things together. 
Our faith is a journey of ups and downs as we live with these ambiguities and, and sometimes the uncertainty taking over from our trust and hope and at other times our trust seems to just conquer all. Fortunately, our salvation does not turn on how well we handle the ambiguities of faith. God knows we will have ups and downs. His son sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he questioned if dying for the sins of the world was the only way that those sins could be dealt with. As we saw in our second reading, God assured us that he will hold on to us and never let us go, however fragile our faith may be. This ability that God gives us, that he builds into us by faith, also helps us deal with other ambiguities in, the, in our modern lives. I'll mention one, but you might think of many others. The one I have in mind is the experience of transgenderism. We know from Genesis 1 that God made humans male and female. I think we can cut the original authors of Genesis some slack in not mentioning intersex people, though they equally bear the image of God. Human knowledge of chromosomes has only been around for 100 years or so. I think we should see that language, that language in the Bible of, of male and female is referring to biological sex as it quickly is linked to procreation. Go forth and multiply. I mention this subject because I'm interested in how our experience of ambiguity, dealing with things we don't understand, helps us deal with the ambiguities around transgenderism. As we know, some people do not think and feel that their bodies and their biology fit with their sense of self. I'm not going to get into the contested areas of medical and psychological classification and treatment of gender dysphoria. I've read a fair bit, in part because some of my close relatives are living with these issues. But I'm a long way from being an expert. However, it seems to me that we should hold lightly in two hands two apparently incompatible things. In one hand, we hold that God made each of us male and female, and in the other, that some people's lived experience does not fit with that. And the only way they can be themselves is to live as they feel is right. And the same goes with non-binary and various other understandings and experiences of gender and sexuality. We must welcome and love all people, but drop neither hand. I cannot say that God did not make us male and female, but I can say I'm not going to tell anyone how they should live with their understanding of their gender. I think the Bible has conditioned us to deal with ambiguity. In our first reading we hear, there is a time, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to give up. But which is it? We're not told. You've got to work that out for yourself. In this moment, should I laugh or cry? 
Should I keep going or stop? How long do I have to keep going in a particular direction before I go, no, I've had enough, I'm off? There are ambiguities in the teaching of Jesus. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to the gathered crowd, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Wonderful. But I don't think any of us would think, and certainly none of us should think, that that applies to domestic violence or bullying in the workplace. So where to draw the line? Is it loving to let someone abuse or hurt you? Certainly not. It is not good for them or for you or for the people who love you and like or rely on you. If abusers do it to you, they'll do it to someone else. So on the one hand, we have to hold Jesus' teaching against retaliation. And on the other hand, we have to know he loves and cares for us and wants good for us. And each one of us has to be able to hold these intention and find a balance. Jesus also said, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. In other words, don't waste your time with some people. He said this to his disciples, but to what extent, if any, does it apply to us? I suggest we are not the answer to every problem that comes our way. But which ones can we duck? Who, who can we avoid? And we face challenges all the time. If we see someone doing what seems to us to be in breach of God's plan for us or them, what do we do? Should we rebuke them like Jesus did? Sin no more. Or gently try and show them a better way. Or shut up, convincing ourselves that it's not our place or it might do more harm or good. All of those are viable possibilities and you have to work out which is the best one. Jesus tells us to love our neighbour as we love ourselves, but, but how much? How do we apply all our heart and all our mind and all our body and to all the challenges and opportunities we face each day without wearing ourselves out or going round the bend? I generally say, listen to wise people around us. It's hard to work everything out on our own and God gives us each other. But don't take all the advice that you're given because some of it is not well thought out. So how do we find a way forward, find a balance, hold two truths in tension? It sounds obvious, but it's true by following Jesus and recognising that he does not immediately give us answers to all our questions. Uh, some of you may know uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Uh, some people have it on a bracelet. In fact, I heard uh, that uh, Kurong Christian Bookshop, uh, those bracelets are the most stolen item they have. <laughs> I love it. But a really good answer to that question, what would Jesus do, is, I don't know. But I will think and pray about it. 
It took the early church 300 years to work out the dual nature of Jesus and the doctrine of the Trinity. And people went on loving God and neighbour, and the church grew from a few hundred in Jerusalem to half the Roman Empire by Christians holding to their faith and muddling through. I suspect many of you uh, are uncertain about how many charities to support and how to behave when asked for money in the street. We know Jesus' call and example of generosity to the poor, but where to draw the line? The answer will be different for each one of us. But prayer really helps. Take it to God. One thing many of us fear is the growth of conspiracy theories and their effect on our relationships and politics. We should not demonise people who believe in conspiracy theories, in part because they won't do them any good, and in part because a lot of us do distrust powerful people and organisations. But if we're able to deal with ambiguity, we will be better able to avoid conspiracy theories. Often these theories are developed to help people deal with a sense of lack of control, uncertainty. Conspiracy theories can offer a neat and tidy narrative that helps to settle our anxiety, often through the identification of scapegoats that can be blamed for the crisis, the right, the progressives, the rich, drug companies, media outlets that don't share our prejudices, China and so many more. There is an absurd comfort in believing that specific people or organisations have planned a disaster for their own profit, particularly if you feel that you're one of the few who know the truth. Rather than accepting that often terrible events can happen at random without grand mastermind behind them. In the toss-up between conspiracy and stuff-up, 90% is stuff-up. Various psychological studies show that we are more likely to fall for conspiracy theories when we already feel anxious. And this often surprisingly uh, uh, is able to be primed. Dutch researchers, for example, found that simply asking someone to recall a time when they felt disempowered and helpless was enough to encourage conspiratorial thoughts. But God trains us through the Bible to deal with the uncertainties we face in our day-to-day -day lives. Why didn't God just let Adam and Eve die childless and forget about the human race? Because he wants to share his love. But why? I don't know. But I'm really glad that he does. The great books of the Old Testament, Job and Ecclesiastes, are all about ambiguity. But they still instill in us trusting God. The wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs only works if we realise that most of the proverbial sayings are generalisations and don't apply in every situation. And we have to work out when they do and when they don't. There is much mystery in Jesus and his ways, but he is more inspiring and lovable than strange. He didn't teach helplessness. He did not go around blaming all the suffering he encountered on the Romans or the religious elite. He expects people to get on with their lives and to, to do good. Love your neighbour. Love God. Get on with it. 
Another thing that should shape how we deal with ambiguity is that the Bible is evidence-based. Jesus was a real person. The evidence for his life, his teaching, his mercies, and his death in the resurrection is sound. You need faith to understand what they mean, but you don't need faith to believe that they happened. The Gospels are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. So when there is something we don't understand, we look for the evidence and suspend judgment until we have sufficient evidence. We may be sceptical of some evidence until we have more and better evidence, but we don't throw up our hands and go with theories that themselves lack good evidence. I don't know where the COVID virus came from. It may have come from the wet market in Wuhan or from a failure of safety protocols in a research lab or somewhere else. But I have no evidence that it was a plot by the Chinese Communist Party to bring down the West or a plot by the CIA to bring down China. The evidence is just missing. We wait for credible evidence and in the meantime, we trust that God is in control and has our futures in his hand. For that's the bedrock of our faith. We can live with ambiguity and do not need conspiracy theories to explain bad things that happen. We can live with uncertainty because we know the things of this world will pass away, but God's love for us will not. We have all the evidence of God's love that we can possibly need because Jesus, the one and only Son of God, died for us and rose for us all to see as the first fruits of what we will enjoy. So I hope that helps with your uncertain lives. Uh, And if you're uncertain about anything I've said today, that's okay. God bless.